We uh, rejoice that we get to come to you in prayer. We know that we don't have a natural right in ourselves, that we uh, who are fallen creatures um, have made ourselves odious uh, to you, and yet uh, because of what Christ has accomplished and by faith in Him and uh, by your work on our behalf, we get to be called your children and come into your presence. We get to bring our requests bring our praises, bring ourselves before you and ask for your work. And we rejoice in that. And today, as we look at the weather outside, we pray that you would uh, keep folks safe as they are uh, traveling, as they're trying to get to uh, church this morning and scraping windows and doing what all they're doing. Bless them, I pray, and bring them here safely and, and to the service also. And as we open your word this morning to deal with things that might be a question for us, we pray that you would help us, that uh, we would look into your word to see what your word says to us, that we would uh, be willing to uh, submit to what we find there, and that you by your spirit would uh, open our eyes to see what is in your word. So we ask for your blessing today in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we get started on our question and answer time, I just um, brought these. Uh, these are a couple of books. One is, uh, they're both actually rel relatively new. They're on the topic of this confession and just discussing it in more greater detail. Uh, it's not easy reading. Neither one is easy reading. But if, um, if you have a desire to look more in depth into the topics we're discussing and uh, see um, the historical arguments for why they were significant in the 17th century, and see why they're significant today and all throughout church history, I would um, encourage you to come and look at, at these. Um, anyone want to, anyone, I can pass them out right now, and we don't have to pass them around to the whole class because most probably may not really care. But anyway, I, I've got them up here if anyone wants to take a look. Um, if you want to do some more reading on the topic, um, feel free to grab those, and as long as I get them back eventually, that would be great. Um, so again, today is uh, question and answer time, and so we wanted to open it up to you. We know that, um, particularly in the last few weeks, we have gone at top speed uh, trying to get through the material, attempting to demonstrate that what we see in the confession is not new. Uh, it's not something surprising to us. It's not, um, it's not something that maybe uh, the church hasn't talked about for centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, perhaps it's new to us. Maybe we haven't asked those questions. Maybe we haven't worked through those topics um, and so, um, realizing that, we wanted to open it up and give you guys opportunity to ask questions uh, on these topics that, uh, that we've been discussing in the confession to this point. So, um, we have, um, I noticed that we have some cut pieces of paper there. If some of you have more detailed questions or if you're um, shy to ask the question yourself or whatever, we can, we can pass those things out. So, Stephen, if you would kind of hand out those and... We don't have to use those. Just raise your hand and ask your question if you have a question, and we'll work through stuff. That's, that's all we have planned for this morning, this whole Sunday school hour. So if you guys have no questions, then I'm going to pace around awkwardly staring at you for the remainder of the time. You could sing to us. I could sing to you? No, no, I couldn't, actually. <clears throat> I've been forbidden from singing to you. All right. Yes, Brooke. Yeah. 
Romans 14, 12. Yeah, I, I don't understand it yet, so <laughs> once I do, I will. All right, so the question is about how we reconcile being saved by grace beginning to end with also being held accountable for the actions that we do. And so the verse you pointed us to was what? 14.12, okay. All right, and so, um, yeah, so Romans 14.12 says, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God, all right? So uh, what we're talking about here um, is the topic of our forgiveness, our right standing before God, and the fact that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, for us who are in Christ, our sins have been paid for, they've been forgiven, the penalty of them, the wrath of God for our sin has been placed upon uh, Christ and and judged in Him. He's paid that penalty to the full. There is no more wrath of God for us, and, uh, and there is only um, God's pleasure uh, toward us in, in that regard, because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. So we who are in Christ have right standing before God from the moment of conversion. Now, this is very different from um, really near, nearly any other um, uh, type of religion that would have us grow in standing before God, that would have us grow in righteousness before God such that at some point we would eventually become possibly perhaps uh, uh, favorable to God, where God would have a right disposition toward us and, and not uh, see our sin um, as being a bar between us and them, right? So, for example, Roman Catholicism would have us um, work the, um, the, 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 the things that have been given to us by the church so that we can come into better and better standing with God so that at some point we might be justified. In biblical Christianity, the moment of conversion, the Christian receives forgiveness of sin. He's, he's received pardon for sin, and he's received the righteousness of Christ credited to him. So that when God looks at us, He sees us at that moment of conversion with, um, with, with no malice, no wrath, no fury, but instead the full pleasure that He has for the Son, He has for us. We get to stand in that. That's part of what it means to be in Christ. Now, given that, what do we do about the fact that Romans 14 and verse 12 tells us that each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's really the question, right? And so, it can't mean, that, that, that's in chapter 14 of Romans, which came after Romans 1 through 13, right? Which makes the argument that I've just stated very clearly, right? That, that we have right standing before God in Christ, period. That moment we enter into uh, Christ, we are counted righteous in God's sight, period. Paul has labored to make that point for all of Romans. And then we get to this verse which says, we will give an account for ourselves uh, before God. So it can't mean there is going to be a tally at the end of your life or after your death where uh, you will receive judgment for the things that you've done wrong, and you will receive reward for the things that you've done right. Right? 
it, it can't mean that in the sense that we uh, that God is reserving, <clears throat> watching, and, and when the believer sins, he says, oh, I've got wrath for that, and that's going to come in the judgment time. He's going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon that believer's sin. And it can't mean that. Paul has argued uh, at great length to this point that that is not the case. Okay, so what is the case? Well, when we talk about the actions of the believer, when we talk about the fact that we, that we commit sins, that we act in obedience, we grow in our Christian life, grow in our obedience to God. God's judgment upon us, God's uh, glance upon us, God's assessment of us is based upon who Christ is. We are counted His children. We have God's favor. We have right standing with God. But we have actions that are not consistent with that. Now, the interesting thing is that when we get to the end of our lives and the final assessment is made, it's as if God is going to look at your life and He's going to say, see, I counted this person righteous in Christ, and then look what I did in his life by the Spirit. Look at, look at the, the evidence that is put there by the Spirit, by God, in the life of the believer. Right? So there's going to be evidence of God's work. We've talked about sanctification and the ongoing work of the Spirit there. Okay? Those things that, that Christians have done that are displeasing to God, the sins that Christians have committed, well, um, are those positive evidences of the grace of God in your life, those specific sins? No, they're not. That's an evidence, that's a picture of the residue, that's a picture of what came before, what was existent before in the, the believer's life from before they became a believer. So the old man, the body of death that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, those things are evidences of that. And so in themselves... Those sins and the existence of those sins right there are not honoring to God, of course, they're sin. They are themselves not evidence of God's work. But when taken in the, in the scope of the Christian's life, you can see that this is evidence of the old man and the Spirit of God overcomes that old man. Right. So when you look at the broad scope, you can see the work of God in the life of the believer. So in what sense will... Uh, we be held accountable for our actions? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. And uh, Stephen, have you been reading the context of chapter 14 of Romans? I imagine you have. Yeah. All right. So how do you answer the question? <laughs> you didn't just answer the question? No, I didn't. <laughs> well, the main, the main thrust of it is that we're not to... Uh, judge one another on uh, things that God hasn't commanded. So if someone uh, wants to eat only vegetables, that person shouldn't judge someone else who wants to eat meat. It's, it's a passage referring to judgment uh, and quarreling with one another over opinions. Maybe a, a modern-day uh, example would be the example of alcohol. Right? If someone wants to drink alcohol... Um, the person who doesn't want to, for, for godly reasons, shouldn't judge that person. 
uh, of course, unless they were a drunkard and, and those sorts of things. Um, so the, the point is, we're not to judge one another um, over these things that aren't commanded by God, things that are opinions, because ultimately each one of us uh, is accountable before God, not before one another in these things. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think that has to do anything with re- reward or merit, but that we're going to have to give an account before God of how we use what he has given us. Um, but the thrust of it is that we're not to judge each other uh, over things that are opinions. So I, I would interpret this passage in light of the passages that are clearly talking about justification uh, and the rest. Does that make sense? So it, it can't mean that something that we've done merits something from God in light of the clear passages that have to do with the fact that we only stand before God on the merit of Christ. Um, but at the same time, we do want to be responsible and, and be good stewards of the time and resources that God has given us. That, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think it's helpful, particularly in regard to uh, that specific passage, that that's, that's what's going on there, is, um, just as Stephen said. So what about, what about the um, concept beyond the particular context? Is it Will Christians give an account to God for their actions? And and what does that look like? What's the result of that? Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a tough question. We do have we do have the idea that I don't see, and as uh, even as Stephen was talking about there, there is not a sense of um, there is a question going around nowadays about something called future justification that the Christian, yes, has been justified by faith in Christ, but uh, there's going to be a future assessment at which it will be determined whether he's uh, really justified. And so the evidence for that is going to be the good works in his life. And I think that's wrong-headed from the beginning, um, that whole process, because Christ has paid the penalty for us, the righteousness of Christ has been applied to us, and so what, what further righteousness should we expect to please God, something beyond Christ's righteousness? No. Christ has all righteousness, and thus we are justified by faith in Him. Now, there, there, there will come a time when God will assess our lives, and this is what I was trying to say earlier, that when He assesses our lives, what He sees in there, what is demonstrated is, on the one hand, evidence of the old man still there, still present. We can all amen to that, Romans chapter 7. But also, he's going to point out in CC, there is the grace of God at work such that um, they're being conformed to the image of Christ even in this life, even while facing those challenges and dealing with those sins, the grace of God is at work. And so there is evidence given where God is going to say, see, in every single one I justified, here, here you, you can see the evidence of God working graciously in their lives. And so, um, but that's not a future justification. That's not a future examination that we might pass or we might fail. It's more a, a judgment in the sense of God saying, see, right there it is. In every Christian, I have placed my spirit and I have done this, this work conforming them to the image of Christ all the way through. So, Brooke, I don't know if that answers your question all the way. I don't know. I feel like 
Yeah. It's related, I think, <clears throat> to the notion that we as Christians have been forgiven, and yet we as Christians are instructed in the Lord's Prayer in 1 John 1, 9, that we are to confess our sins, ask for forgiveness, and be forgiven. So how is it that both can be true? Well, there's an ultimate sense, there's a, a definitive relational sense in which we have been forgiven, period, of all sins, past, present, and future. But in a relational, ongoing sense, with God. We, we own up to our sin. We confess our sin and we, we, um, and God deals with us in our sin where there might be a time, even as we talked about in an earlier chapter in the confession, that we don't always, that the sin might not feel or experience or recognize or see the hand of blessing in, of God in his life because he's going through a time of discipline. He's going through a time where um, where God is chastening him and training him how hateful that sin is and don't walk according to that sin. Does that mean that the sinner was not forgiven of his sin at that time? No, it doesn't. Uh, not, not ultimately, but relationally you can see that there's a, a harm caused or a, a distance or a, that now the, the, the child of God needs to go through this chastening process. And so... Um, I think, I think your question relates to that question also, that we face relational consequences from our Father. The idea of judgment for sin has God in the place of judge, and that's how the believer, uh, that, that's how the unbeliever faces God. That's the relationship between the unbeliever and God is God is judge, and thus there will be a verdict, and that verdict is going to be guilty right? So facing God as judge versus the believer who's been brought into the family is in Christ, has God as father, and thus when we experience God's displeasure, when we experience God's chastening, it's as his child. It has the purpose of, of, of us repenting of that and, and, and learning about how vile that sin is and to walk uh, in, in, uh, in obedience to God, etc. But, but never at, at any point does it call into into question or does it endanger that status of father-child? Has a new status been, been attained? And so does there need to be conversation about sin and forgiveness given? Yes, but not in the sense of, of the, the unbeliever asking the judge, standing before the judge. It's a very different relationship. And so, um, so I think that helps us think about that that aspect, that we, we have God as our Father. We as believers have God as our Father and not as judge. We're not in that same relationship anymore. Now, we can have a, a more intimate walk with the Father. We can, have, we, we can know times of God's smile of full pleasure and favor or His times, times of chastening, but always as His children. And so there's not a judgment in that sense. So it's, it's probably... It, it's easier to answer this question than negative, what it's not, than the positive of, of exactly what it is, what it looks like. But um, we, we have to be fully convinced of 
what Paul has argued in the first, all, through all of Romans, that, that we, by faith in Christ, have been placed into the status of God's child, never to lose that. We've been placed there by grace, um, and, and we will always be in that relationship. Now, in that relationship, fathers discipline their children, and the father disciplines us. There is a sense, and I, I may be understanding your question a little bit different from, from Brennan, that though God is sovereign, we are still responsible, right? That, that what I do or do not do has eternal ramifications. So, for instance, if I don't share the gospel with so-and-so, there's eternal ramifications for that. My salvation's not in jeopardy. God's still sovereign, but there's still a responsibility there that, um, for instance, if, if we don't train up our children in the things of God, if we don't point them to the gospel, we should expect one thing, and we would be responsible for that thing, even though God is sovereign over their salvation. And, and in a sense, we're accountable for that. Um, so we can't just say, well, God's sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. Well, yeah, that, that's true, but he uses means. And we're responsible to, to use those means that he has uh, ordained. I don't know if that's kind of what you were asking. That, okay. We can just keep coming up with more answers. <laughs> Well, we, we would say that, so a helpful thing for me is, is God's not only sovereign, but also is basically, if God predestines who will be saved, why share the gospel, why pray, would that be a good summary of the question? Um, God is sovereign over the ends, what will happen, and he's sovereign over the means, how those things will happen. So, you know, we've given the example of we thank God for the food on our table. Those are the ends, that God has provided that food for us. He was sovereign over that, but he was also sovereign over how that food came to us. That there's an ordinary way in which food comes to us, right? That people, farmers plant and crops grow, and we have to work to get money to buy that food. 
But at the end of it, we recognize that it was God that gave us that food. In a, in a similar way, God is sovereign over who will be saved and who will not be saved. And he's also sovereign over the means in which they will be saved. Now, could he just save someone willy-nilly and, you know, a, a, a strike of lightning and something like that? Well, yes, but he has ordained ordinary ways in which people will be saved. That's through the sharing of the gospel and, and also through praying for people. That's, that's, those are the things that God uses to save sinners. And so we devote ourselves to those things. Just like if we want to see crops, we devote ourselves to sowing seed and watering that seed. And all the while, once that crop comes up, we recognize that God was sovereign over that. That was God's choice that that, that crop would grow. And so um, what, what's hard for us is it, we're, we're, we're dealing with an infinite degree of sovereignty that's incomprehensible for us. We can understand it. But that, that God is so sovereign that he's sovereign over the So what we do actually matters and we're responsible for it and it has impact and God is sovereign over the whole thing. And, and we see that time and time again in scripture. And so why, why pray, why share the gospel? Because that, those are the only things um, that we should expect that God would use to save sinners. Um, and we have great hope that God uses those things to save sinners. Just like if you were to seed and, and water it, you have great hope that that will produce crop. Because that's ordinarily how things work uh, in God's sovereignty. And I can think of just kind of a, a follow-up um, aspect of that is that, um, you know, I'm thinking of a Christian wife who uh, is married to an unbeliever. I'm thinking of a very specific circumstance, um, Laverne Albaugh, right? Married to a non-Christian man, praying for him for decades, praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. Well, uh, when he was on his deathbed, he comes to faith in Christ. His granddaughter comes in and shares with him. He gets saved. And, uh, or, or John Baker, a sim similar kind of thing, right? So you, in those situations, what, going back to, to what Stephen said about the use of, that God uses means to accomplish his ends. In those two situations, he used the means of those wives praying for decades, and not just the wives, this man for decades, not knowing whether he's among the elect or not. And by the way, we never know in advance who's among the elect. That's, that's God's information, not ours. He doesn't tell us that about someone else. So not knowing, and yet God has, God has elected that he's going to save John Baker. But we don't know that. His wife doesn't know that. His kids don't know that. Uh, the, the church doesn't know that. And so there, there are prayers offered up consistently for decades for this man. In the end, when that man comes to faith in Christ and we see he, he, he receives Christ, he becomes a Christian, then what, what's the response of all of those people who are involved? 
glory to God because look at all the, first of all, God didn't have to save that man, but he did. And second of all, look at all of the hundreds of thousands of prayers offered for this man in faith over the years, not knowing what God was going to do and not, not knowing. And yet, so, so in that moment, because God uses means, even ordinary means like prayer, God uses those means. Did God answer those prayers? Yes, he did. He answered hundreds of thousands of prayers. I, I, I imagine that there were hundreds of thousands of prayers that God answered. And when we hear that John Baker came to faith in Christ at the end of his life, we all go, <laughs> praise God, that's amazing and wonderful. Now, if on the other hand, we were to take a different perspective and we were to uh, take a hyper-Calvinistic perspective, which is God's going to save the elect so we don't need to be involved in sharing the gospel or anything like that. We just, right? Well, let's say John Baker comes to faith in Christ on his deathbed. That's great. I mean, a man came to faith in Christ. But you see the difference of hundreds of thousands of prayers that never happened because we're we're, we're having some goofy view of predestination, right? So the, 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 the view that is biblical is the one that says we're going to pray and ask God to save this man. Is he elect? No idea. That's God's business. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray for decades, and we trust God to bring salvation to this man. And, and in the end, he does, and we rejoice and look at all the answers to prayer, look at how God sustained uh, that wife through all of those years, look at how God worked. And, and you see, God's glory is visible, is manifested in a much, much greater way. Well, that's the, that's the biblical view of predestination. Yes, it's a fact that God has determined in His own mind um, from all eternity past, and you and I have no clue who that is. But God has ordained, meaning He has commanded, that we are to pray that we are to share the gospel. So we do. And when he does it, we say, God did miraculous, wondrous things. And so he's glorified far, far, far greater because of all of the prayers and the trusting and the sharing and all of that that he ordained. And he answers those prayers, saves that person, and it's, it's wonderful. And so... When I think of predestination, that's the way I think about it. It's not my... The Bible says it's a fact and it's a thing. But when I look at a particular, you know, Joe Schmo, no clue. No clue. So I share, I pray, I share, I pray, I encourage everybody else to pray. And, um, but that's God's business. But my business is to, to share and pray and believe the Lord and give Him glory when He, when he does His work. It's a very encouraging thing to me. And it's the grace of God that He allows us to be part of that. You know, that we get to be part of what God is doing and enjoy that. Because uh, He could do the... But he, allow, he wraps us into the whole work, which is, which is amazing. Yes, Andy.
Well, first of all, I, I don't know that I would equate the law written on the heart of an unbeliever with the conscience, um, necessarily. I, think, I, I don't think we need to make that equation. But there is, there is some aspect of that the unbeliever knows murder is wrong, period. He, he knows that murder is wrong. And, um, and so, but uh, because the reason I think we need to remove conscience from the issue is because conscience is, I, I, th- I think, is a slightly different thing. A conscience can be trained. It can be so Christians have a particular conscience, and the conscience isn't always an accurate guide. Going back to the issue that's, that Stephen, you know, said today, the issue of alcohol, right? Consumption of alcohol. When you just look at the Bible, it has a particular view on it. But when you talk to a particular Christian, they they tend to have a different view. They tend to say, "Well, no, it, it would be just better. It would be wrong for me ever to take a, a sip of wine," right? That's their, that's their conscience speaking. But their conscience is not founded in that situation, particularly on the Bible. It's informed by the Bible, but it, it also has personal experience because dad was an alcoholic or because I come from a uh, culture or whatever. So I think, I think we, need to, we, we need to remove conscience from the issue. But when, when we talk about the law of God written upon the heart, when you think about um, what you reference there in Jeremiah 31, that's the the new covenant and that expression that what God was going to do was a new thing. He was going to write the law, take it from the page, and write it onto the heart of Christians. That's what it, that's, that's, that's what it means to be in the new covenant. That's an aspect of what it means to be in the new covenant, is that we have the law of God written in our hearts. But Paul will say in Romans that there are situations where the unbeliever responds in certain ways that they are a law to them. They show that the work of God is that the law of God is written on their hearts while their conscience alternately convicts uh, and excuses them, accuses and excuses them. Romans chapter 2, I can't remember the verse offhand. 15. 15, right? So there is a sense in which the unbeliever who does not commit murder, right, is that, is that in keeping with the law of God? Yes, it is, right? But when we talk about, um, but, but it's, it's pretty basic and it can be uh, it's, it's, it's easily ignored by the unbeliever, right? When we talk about the person who is in the new covenant, well, now it's, it's more specific and we have the inclination of the heart also to follow that law that's now a part of the new, the new covenant as well. We have the inclination of that and we have a greater clarity particular in, in particular in regard to the aspects that have to do specifically with God. That we, that we now know and understand who God is and, 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 and we have a view that my behavior will or will not be um, reflective of God's glory or honoring to God or whatever. We have, a, we, we have a, a greater education, I think, in regard to the first table of the law, the first four or five commandments. And so, um, and so there is a greater specificity to it and there is the inclination that the unbeliever has also that there's a heart to obey it that the unbeliever doesn't have. And that's a part of that law being written on the heart. I think, I think all of that goes in there. So there's a greater specificity, a greater clarity. Um, it's not just broad terms, don't kill anybody, but decanim is okay. You know, like we, we have a, the, the, the Christian has a more specific and, 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 and spirit-clarified and spirit-empowered um, understanding of that law written, written on the heart.
Yeah. Well, it's a Romans 1 suppression of truth is what that is, that you can, uh, so the, the question, I'm not even sure I repeated the first question, but um, so what, what about those who persistently do horrific evil and apparently without remorse? Um, and I, I think that is, that is an evidence of that suppression of truth from Romans chapter 1, that it's there, but they ignore it. They've, they've got such a callous grown over that sin that, that um, uh, they don't even appear to acknowledge that. Though, very often, later in life, when they themselves fall prey to weakness and, and whatnot, you can see the remorse. Um, but but uh, we, we have the capacity to harden ourselves. I mean, as, as, as fallen humans, particularly unbelievers, have a capacity to harden themselves to such an extent that that's not even an issue. All right, other questions? We got 17 minutes left. Yes? So the, the question, as I understand it, is there can be a lot of um, different ways to interpret Scripture to understand the Christian life, and, and um, some of those perhaps more or less innocuous, but at what point does your, um, does your how, how far off of center does your interpretation of Scripture uh, and beliefs about God need to be before it means you're just not a Christian. Is that a... Okay. So when we talk about various doctrines, there are some that... Th so this, this is truth. This is, now, I'm trying to access that truth as the preacher. I'm, I'm trying to access this truth. Now, I'm sure I'm wrong somewhere. I, I don't know where... I'm, but I'm sure I am because I'm not, I'm not perfect and whatever. I, and, I, and I try to interpret, interpret it correctly. We as a church try to do that, right? But there are some, there are some places where I make error. I, I, hopefully when it's pointed out to me, I'll correct it, right? And not persist in error. But there are errors that are errors. And then there are errors that have to do with the heart of who God is and what salvation is like that become not just errors like, oh, that's why you see it. I think it's, I see it a little bit different way. No, it, it's when it, when it has to do with, for example, God is not triune. That's not an error. That's a heresy. That's a heresy. That means that that belief puts you outside of Christendom. Okay? And for me as a preacher, for example, to preach that or or as a leader of my family, to teach that to my children. I am not teaching Christianity. I am teaching heresy. And, um, and so I'm not representing Christianity at that point. And so there are there's a difference between an error and heresies, right? A heresy puts you outside of the faith. 
you are no longer representing Christianity. Okay? And so, um, now there, there, there might be genuine believers who, 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 for one reason or another, edge into heresy. They will repent and come back. And, and begin to believe things that are not heretical. So I'm not saying that a, a person who says the words God is not triune and means them cannot be saved or, or is not saved. I'm, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. That's a different question. But when I say that, I am not preaching Christianity. I am preaching a false gospel. I am, I am espousing heresy when I do that. And so the, the way we establish the categories between error which is problematic in its own way, but heresy, which is damning to those who, 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 who follow that message, has to do with the person of God and salvation itself. So if, if I were to confess that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, three persons, one God, equal in, in power and glory and, and majesty, I could confess all those things, but then say, and you really have to work to, to gain their favor. So you need to do these things. That's not just error. Uh, I've, I've committed an error in specifically in regard to how salvation works in such a way that I have destroyed the gospel. That's heresy. And so at, at that point, I, it's not just an error, it's heresy. It's not biblical. I have, I have removed, I have taken away the gospel um, in, in my communication of it. So, um, my daughters go to a, a school where there are a lot of Presbyterians. They baptize infants, right? Well, I, I think that's an error. I don't think that's biblical, but it's not heresy. It's not, it, it's a, it, it's a, I would like to argue, I would like to argue and I would like to have that discussion with them. I think it's a problem. I think it's an error, but it's not on this category. We didn't send them to BYU, <laughs> right? And so, as in as much as our error strikes at the heart of who God is, strikes at the heart of the gospel itself and how, how it works, now we're talking heresy. We've, we've removed the one true God of the Bible from the conversation. That's heretical. We've removed the way of salvation as given in Scripture. That's heretical. And so, um, those are the basic categories. Is that, is that clarifying somewhat? Okay. I, I think I would also add, so in the New Testament, you see one, that there is a greater expectation for teachers. So, uh, you know, we would be more quick to label who, someone who is teaching heresy as a heretic uh, as opposed to someone who's listening to heresy and maybe believing it, you know. Uh, you all, not only do you have those categories that Brent talked about, but you also have so you have the the church kicking out people who are teaching things that uh, twist the gospel or a different gospel, but you also have the church uh, excommunicating people who are living lives of unrepentant sin. And so there's also I think a moral category that if you have a teacher, for instance, who is teaching that sin is okay, like gross, blatant sin. For instance, in our day, the litmus test would be homosexuality. That's, that's a red flag because, because that's the very thing that someone would be kicked out of the church for because they're showing signs that they're not a Christian. And so if, if someone is able to teach that that is okay and, and morally right or those sorts of things, 
uh, I would say that that's also a, a damning thing to be teaching. Yeah, because I think because there's a connection there. Now, can someone, can someone, you know, maybe a new believer, you know, I gave the example of, of abortion the other week with myself, who hasn't quite fully thought through those things or hasn't, you know, worked through the biblical evidence of those things. That, I wouldn't, that might, person just might need to grow. But if you have a teacher, a pastor, who is teaching those things as morally good, the very things that, you know, uh, practicing would be a sign of not being a Christian. Would you agree with that? Uh, I'm not sure I would because, because I, I, I see those as, as errors and serious errors, mm. but, not, but, but the proclamation of that message, if the other things were in order, now there's great inconsistency there, yeah. but if the other things are in order, would not, would not damn the hearer, would not damn the person who believes those things. But would it be evidence that they're not a believer? The preacher? Yeah. Perhaps, but that, that itself is not heresy. Mm. It's not only heresy that evidences someone who's an unbeliever. Um, it's, and, not, it's not a damning belief is what you're saying. Right. But it may be an indication that that person is yeah, not sure. a believer. But, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, but sure. Yeah, but not itself be, be heretical. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, okay. Yes. I have to get on my spectacles. All right, an anonymous question <laughs> from nobody in particular, just appeared in my hand, uh, asks that we revisit why we are uh, looking at and studying uh, the 1689 uh, Confession and what is our goal with it. And I think that's a, that's a, a very appropriate uh, place for us to, um, to, to land if if, I can, if we can address this in less than nine minutes, we might have time for more questions. But again, the reason we're looking at this is because we are not, it's not because we are holding this in the place of Scripture. What we are saying is this is a representation of Scripture, meaning it represents the teaching of Scripture in a, in a more uh, succinct fashion and, um, and in a systematic arrangement, like a doctrinal statement does. Everybody has a doctrinal statement. Everybody has a, a, a list in their minds. It's just usually not written down of what they believe. We're saying this is what we believe, the, the, the two of us are saying. And we're trying to teach it, work through it in detail, chapter by chapter, so that we as a church can look at it and examine it and say whether it is or is not biblical, particularly as it regards these issues that we're talking about. Is it orthodox in its expression of who God is? Is it orthodox in its expression of, of the gospel and how the gospel works? And we've looked at and we've recognized that we, we've, we've focused in on certain aspects of the gospel where we've talked about adoption and we've, talked, we've, we've, we've discussed that perhaps in greater detail than we might be used to. We've discussed justification perhaps in greater detail than we might be used to. Looking at each little piece of the gospel itself to examine them in detail. But what, what we're um, looking to do is say this is a, an accurate representation of what the Bible teaches. There may be corners here and there. We haven't talked yet about the Pope being the Antichrist. We will get there, and we'll talk about that. That's in here, right? But, but we're not saying, um, as we are working through this, um, 
that you have to believe the Pope is the Antichrist or, uh, or, or throw this away. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying as a church is that we want to work through, we want to discuss this as an option that we will, as a church, put into place of the doctrinal statement that we have currently in existence. Okay? Now, you can see this one, our doctrinal statement is five pages, four pages, I think it's four pages and change, if you print it out small. <laughs> this one's 32 chapters, so it's much more detailed, it's much more, um, uh, uh, goes into greater depth for, for justification, adoption, and, and, and 30 other things, right? Goes into great detail. Why is it important that we go to such great lengths to talk about the details? It's because... We believe a church ought to make known what it's going to teach, ought to fly the flag. This is what we teach. So if you come to church here, you can expect to hear this, right? And, uh, and this does a, a thorough job of making clear all of those, uh, those different aspects in regard to adoption, in regard to all, all of the 32 chapters that are in here. It's making it clear what you can expect to hear when you come to Parkside. We had, um, it was, it, with a shorter doctrinal statement, there are more assumptions made, right? And so when you read it as the person coming to visit or the person considering joining or whatever, it's a shorter statement. There's less there. But guess what? The preacher doesn't only preach on those things. He opens up the Bible to the middle of Isaiah, and, and talks about things that are not contained in that shorter statement. And so um, what that means is you don't know. If it's not explicitly spelled out in that statement, and our shorter statement missed a lot of things, if it's not explicitly spelled out, you're making assumptions about what the preacher is going to say. And I'm, as, as the preacher, I'm going to have to preach on those things even though the doctrinal statement doesn't give me direction on those issues. You may not like what I say. I may not like your response to what I say, but it wasn't, it wasn't spelled out in the doctrinal statement. This one, the Confession of 1689, spells those things out in much greater detail. It gives much greater guidance to me, help to me as the preacher, that when I open to the middle of Isaiah and I talk about some topic that's not contained in the shorter, uh, the shorter doctrinal statement that, that we've had since 1989, I have some direction about about how to understand those doctrines and teach those doctrines. On the flip side, you're considering coming to church here and we're in the middle of Isaiah or whatever, right? We're in Romans or we're, we're somewhere in the Bible and you're thinking, what's he going to say on this topic, right? Well, by having greater detail and greater specificity, you can say, well, I don't know what all he's going to say, but it's going to be within these bounds and you're going to have a good idea of, of what the preacher's going to say. And so we've said earlier that a good confession protects the, the congregation from the preacher. Now, I hope nobody needs to be protected from me, but it provides good protection from the preacher, right? I may not always be the, the preacher here uh, and, and, and whatnot, but, but having it spelled out that way, you know what to expect from the preacher, and you, hold, you, have, the, you have something by which to hold the preacher accountable for what he's going to say, right? Very helpful. Likewise, I have something that I can look to, and if, 
if I'm working through the middle of Isaiah and, 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 and covering some doctrine that I picked that just randomly, I don't, I don't know why. But if I'm, if I'm working through some doctrine that, um, that maybe you've never thought about before and you hear it and you say, whoa, that's weird. Where did that come from? That's, that's crazy talk. That's, right? And, and, and if I can say, well, it's right here and, and you knew that or you could have known that had you, had you worked through and studied through. It's right there. I didn't say anything weird. It may be new to you. It may be shocking to you, but it's right here. Right? That's helpful. So it protects me from you in the sense that um, uh, you being astounded at what I said, and I'm just saying, well, it's right there. Right? And so uh, that's what we're doing is we're trying to work through this to demonstrate that um, because we, we believe it is a good representation and a good summary of biblical teaching in a systematic fashion that helps you understand um, what, what the Bible says, and particularly in this case, helps you understand what the preacher and teacher is going to teach and preach at Parkside. Yes? So then, given what you just said, if we adopt it, will we be doing accurate adoption of the second opinion? So, um, so there are... <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> it's the middle of second opinions, and I, I, you know, I'm working my way there. No, um, so the, the question is, what about those places that are that are odd, like the Pope is the Antichrist, right? Um, so when we talk about, th there are levels of subscription, meaning there are those who say, um, you have to believe it verbatim, whatever, everything that is in here, right? If you're going to accept a confession, you believe every syllable that it says, right? That's the, that's, that, uh, that has a name. It's a very strict, strict, strict subscription, yeah. right? Now, I don't believe that that's the case. I, I believe that, that even, even officers of the church could say, well, I don't know about that. You know, like I, I can't understand why they would say that or whatever. But right, so there are details that are not, not a part of the structure of the confession that don't change the doctrine or the teaching of the confession in any way, but that a person might take exception to. One of the, one of the, one of the leaders of the church, an elder, for example, deacon, something like that, right? So, so there, there are ways that we can, we can take certain, certain exceptions to some of those areas. Now, what about the congregation? Well, the congregation, we, we don't have an expectation that you guys have worked through the 32 chapters as, as detailed as we have and believe and, and, and understand everything and believe everything in, in, in the same way. What we're saying is that I recognize this is orthodox. This is a good representation of who God is. This is a good rep representation of the gospel itself. This is a good guide for us as a church. It's a good flag for us to fly. It is helpful in these ways. And as, uh, as you know, we open to chapter 15, I don't know, 19, whatever. And do, do you as the member in the church, since in this hypothetical situation where it gets passed and whatever, does that mean you have to believe everything in it? No, that's not what that means. Uh, even to be a member, that, that's, that's not what that means. But it does mean that, that we're saying, I'm not, as a member, when I, when I sign on to this, when I join the church, I'm not going to um, fly a flag for an opposing view on this position. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to rally the troops to oppose the teaching of the church. I may not personally believe it, and, and, and that's okay. Um, but I, I'm also not going to lead a charge against it. Right. And so, um, yeah, there are going to be things that, there are going to be some things you're like, I've never thought of that, no idea, and don't have the time to work through it in detail right now. Or some of them be like, I, I just don't believe that. Okay. Right. 
We're, we're, not, we're not saying that every person who is a member at Parkside must uh, understand and agree with every jot and tittle in here. That's not what we're saying. And that's um, nothing new. Like our current doctrinal statement, not everybody, not all of our members could fully agree with, with that. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I do look forward to explaining, to explaining it, because there, there is a sense in which, um, well, anyway, there's, there, there's a better way to understand it, but you're right. Are there any end times, like, Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah. that chapter is not, that, the statement that chapter is, in, is under the church, not under end times. Eschatology, yeah. So it's a different, yeah. All right, we are three minutes over, two minutes over already. Thank you, guys. Good questions. Um, I know we kind of uh, waxed eloquent for a while there. I appreciate the good questions. And we? we? I, no, I, 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 will, <laughs> I, I waxed eloquenter. <laughs> All right, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity today to pause from our regular um, course of instruction on the topic of the confession to be able to ask some questions and think about, okay, what are we doing? What does this mean? Uh, how do we understand some of these uh, particular issues or more broadly about the confession itself and whatnot? So I pray that you would um, help us as we think in these terms and uh, uh, bless our time as we open your word. Our desire is to understand what your, what your word says. And uh, that is our desire. That's our goal. And we think the confession is helpful in achieving that goal. And Father, as we move to uh, our main service, we pray that you would bless our time. We pray that uh, you would be at work in us by your Spirit as we lift our voices in song, as we uh, join together in prayer, as we sit under the teaching of your Word, and as we partake of the Lord's table. We pray for your blessing, for your work in our uh, hearts and in this congregation uh, in these next few minutes. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have, if your question, if you weren't able to ask your question, please feel free to talk to us too.